Today on Government Matters, the Office of the Future at the Air Force creates a new way to work. My conversation with the Colonel in charge of the project about combining the benefits of telework and collaboration. Disaster overseas after an earthquake hits Haiti hard. My conversation with the team leader on the ground in Port-au-Prince about what USAID has done to deliver aid and what's still left to do. And creating a collaborative work environment following the pandemic. Two quality and risk leaders share their goals to reform decision-making at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Air Force's Installation and Mission Support Center has an initiative called the Office of the Future. Its goal is to combine the benefits of telework with the benefits of collaboration. Colonel Kevin Montovani is Vice Commander for the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center, which is part of the Air Force Materiel Command. He's leading the Office of the Future transformation. Colonel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. Good morning. So what did your team realize um, during the pandemic that led to this new office structure? Well, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, our headquarters is around 3,900 people, mostly uh, administrative office type work goes on, but every single person had a cubicle, one person, one desk. Uh, what we saw during the pandemic, you know, for, uh, for health protection reasons and to reduce the risk of transmission, almost everybody in our headquarters was at home teleworking uh, as most of america had to do at various points in time if they could what we found over the last year was that we could be absolutely successful working from home utilizing things like zoom microsoft teams uh, different virtual platforms uh, and, and we didn't miss a beat so looking forward post pandemic we said hey why don't we take advantage of this and take some of the best lessons learned that we uh, put into practice during the pandemic from telework, which gave everybody flexibility to, uh, you know, do some work, uh, go for a jog, uh, make lunch for the kids, and then go back to work while, while you're still in your office, so to speak, at home. But then combine it with what was best about pre-pandemic work, which was the collaboration that you can only get from in-person work. So we're calling it a hybrid approach and it's uh, office of the future, not new to Silicon Valley and tech industry and other people, but it's, it's quite new for us, it's radical. So what do you see as the fundamental difference then for the office of the future and, and the benefits of, of this new style of workplace? Well, a, a few things, uh, giving employees the, the flexibility to work where they wanna work from, be it if they wanna come into the office every single day because they feel that that's where they're most productive, um, so be it, we'll accommodate that with hotel space. Uh, if they feel that they can be even more productive, which is some of the feedback we're getting from a lot of people uh, working at their home office, their desk, uh, then then do that. Uh, but maybe uh, what we're thinking is do it 50% of the time. So 50% of the time you're gonna come into the office, but it's not gonna be the normal office. You're not gonna just come in to sit and do emails, which a lot of office workers do. We wanna have collaborative environment uh, and, and teaming events set up for the days that you come in. Colonel, I, I, un really, uh, I understand that you're gonna be ripping out the cubicles and putting in yes. cafe style seating. That sounds appealing. It, it does, you know, uh, I like to say that when I've gone into the office in the past, 
you can see the earth curving as the cubicle walls go into infinity. Now we've ripped out a whole bunch of those cubicles and it's just open, open with couches, stand up uh, tables and desks. So how did you design the new office space? Did you bring in consultants? Uh, we, we, you know, we, we took some field trips. So we're, we're pretty close to Austin. We went to Austin and visited uh, something they call the Capital Factory, sort of like a WeWork for tech industry startups. Absolutely open and collaborative. We saw that. We, uh, we spoke with some consultants and uh, architectural engineering firms. And, and then I have some experience going around in Silicon Valley during a fellowship and seeing uh, what, what cutting edge companies were doing similar to this. Any difficulties so far in implementation or in getting buy-in from senior leadership? <laughs> I, I think that the buy-in was natural because we're doing it now. Two or three years ago, the buy-in would have been an uphill slog uh, to convince everybody that, hey, we want to work from home and only come into the office every once in a while. So that's leadership. I would say that for, for the masses of, uh, of our team, our, our airmen, uh, they're excited about it, but a lot of them are nervous because what is it going to be like? I'm not going to have a wall full of diplomas and pictures. Uh, there, there's just going to be a hotel space that if I can sit in uh, for the day, that's going to be it. And then I have to bring my stuff home. So it's different. What about classified material? Do you, I mean, certainly you can't do telework in that case, right? Um, in general, no. In general, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to have to come in to a secure vault to do their work. Um, there are technologies that would allow uh, an individual to bring home a secure uh, workstation. Uh, so that they can do things, but there, there's a whole lot of complicated factors to that. Office of the Future could probably accommodate that in the future, but right now we're really focused on the unclassified uh, work that we do. So what kind of data will you be collecting to see if this setup is working or not? Absolutely. Well, I like to say that we're experimenting right now. We're gonna, well, right now, because of the health protection conditions, we're not all back into the office. So this hasn't really begun. It's gonna begin when we can safely do it. Once we start bringing in a, a lot of people, we're gonna collect utilization uh, data on the permanently assigned offices, because there'll still be some of those, uh, on the hotel spaces, the team rooms, the open collaborative environments that we're building. And if some are not being used, well, then we're just gonna get rid of them. And if there's a, an increased demand for the others, we're gonna make more of those. So it's an experiment uh, that we hope to, to you know, robust as we go. Um, Colonel, in the 30 seconds we've got left, do you think other military branches or even civilian agencies should give this a shot? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I read a lot in the news about how Americans are, have gotten used to working at home uh, over the last year and a half. Uh, and you see it in the tech industry and you see it on Main Street USA. Uh, for the other military organizations, absolutely. Give this a try. Call us at AFIMSC. We can help you uh, get started. We can help you uh, avoid some of the growing pains that we've seen. Uh, and then uh, it's an experiment. You know, I, I don't think we have it right uh, with our 1.0 design, but I think we'll get it right. All right, Colonel, uh, best of luck to you and send us some pictures once you're done, okay? You bet, Mimi. Thanks. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Coming next, the aftermath of the disastrous earthquake in Haiti. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the team leader for USAID's response efforts shares what they're currently doing on the ground in Haiti. You're watching 7 News.
When disaster strikes in the United States, like the destruction of Hurricane Ida, FEMA funds and coordinates a response. But when disaster strikes overseas, USAID coordinates and delivers American aid. On August 14th, a 7.2 magnitude earthquake and a tropical storm in Haiti left thousands of residents without basic necessities. Tim Callahan is the leader for USAID's disaster assistance response team for the 2021 earthquake in Haiti. It's part of USAID's Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. He's currently in the field in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. Tim, welcome. Good morning. The capital where you are was not directly hit by the earthquake, but what's the situation right now in Haiti? Yeah, so the situation, uh, unlike 2010 when I was here, where the capital was devastated, where buildings fell down and, and there was a lot of need for food and, and so forth, that's not the case in the capital, uh, but it is the case on the southern part of, of Haiti. Uh, when the earthquake hit, um, you know, the priorities for us as coordinating the U.S. government effort was search and rescue and medical evacuations. And we work, again, as, as the lead federal agency coordinating, we work very closely with the U.S. Coast Guard for the medical evacuations. And now our main focus, so after the search phase has ended, after the medical evacuations have ended, uh, the main focus right now is working with the government's FEMA equivalent called DPC, Civil Protection, to get out aid to hard to hit areas, isolated areas, um, again, based on the priorities that the government has set forth. So the main issues we're focusing on uh, between last week and this week are issues related to shelter, um, food assistance, health assistance, water, sanitation, hygiene. But again, obviously everything connected to logistics um, and, and working together with Department of Defense, U.S. Coast Guard, obviously um, civil protection here and the international community, NGO, non-government organizations in the U.N. Now, uh, Tim, it has been about three weeks. How, how are the people doing? Do they have basic necessities? Do they have water? Do they have housing? Yeah, I think the first the first week was difficult, no question about it, and given the security situation. Um, but I think, you know, last week was so much better in getting items out to folks. Um, today, for example, we're in the process of working with the Department of Defense um, to support a, a very large shipment of food to Jeremy. And uh, recently, we've been working with the World Food Program to ensure that food assistance is getting out. We've been, you know, what's happened in the last 10 days or so, so we're a little over... Um, yeah, the earthquake was on the 14th. The first week was difficult, just trying to get things organized, work with local, local mayors and communities. But in, in the re past 10 days or so, uh, there's been convoys of trucks. So 137 have been able to get out from uh, Port-au-Prince to Lakai. And then what the, the challenge now we have is what we call last mile distribution. So even if we get it to warehouses in, in the hard hit areas, it's coordinating with security because that's a really important thing. All these convoys that have gone out, it's you have to have security, the Haitian National Police. Sometimes you'll see some situations where people will surround the truck. Again, groups are well-intentioned, but it, everything has to be coordinated with the government, with security, um, and the NGOs, and, and the UN working together, but also at the local level, right? Mayors, community leaders, making sure when we get it there, there's a plan to distribute it quickly. So a lot of material has gotten out and continues to get out. The big push the government asked us was between last week and this week, to reach you know, that blanket of, of immediate assistance uh, to the hardest hit areas. And that's what we're focused on right now with the government. So Tim, talk to me about the logistics a little bit. When a disaster strikes, um, how do you start planning this type of large scale response effort, especially with timing being so critical? 
Yeah, a lot of it happens actually beforehand. So we have, for example, the search and rescue teams. We have agreements already in place uh, for search and rescue worldwide with Fairfax County Fire Department and with Los Angeles County Fire Department. So the exercises, the planning, um, knowing who can go, how quickly they can go. Uh, the same thing with the Department of Defense. Um, actually, uh, Colonel Gavitner from um, JTF Bravo, he's based in Honduras. I had actually gone out there a couple of weeks ago for the purpose of getting to know him, talking about how we would work together if something strikes. And then first time that I met him then after that was, you know, here in Haiti. So he's based at Guantan Guantanamo, bringing aircraft in. So a lot, Admiral Fowler, he's the lead at Southern Command in Miami. We constantly meet, talk, review plans, and we do that all the time ahead of time. Um, obviously with the government here, we have our, our plans of uh, capacity building, you know, activities with, you know, uh, incident command system, urban search and rescue with the government. Dr. Chandler is the FEMA equivalent director here, and we have a strong relationship with him. And AID has a humanitarian office here in Haiti that, again, knows the World Food Program and other partners. Tim, how long will your team be in Haiti? How, how do you know that we're done, it's time to go home? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a great question. Um, we look at it as, as phases. Um, so, you know, right now, obviously, the first week, the phase was the search and rescue phase. Uh, looking for people who would still be alive under the rubble um, it, it combined with trying to medically evacuate folks from hard to hit areas to get them into uh, medical care and hospitals in the capital the next phase is what we're in right now that's trying to get food water shelter materials that's the big need right now um, it's we're in hurricane season as you know so that, that's the, the phase we're in right now we'll also be putting resources into partners hands so i would say kind of you know for the next you know, a couple of weeks we'll be here, but we'll start to pare down as appropriate. Um, but obviously then after, even after we program resources with regarding food and health and shelter, we'll, we'll have a small team here that will continue to monitor because obviously we want to help, but also we have to guard the taxpayer dollars. So we'll be doing field trips and monitoring trips as the activities continue over the next few months. Tim, thanks so much for taking time to join us um, and best of luck to you, stay safe. Thanks so, thanks so much, my pleasure. Coming next, creating a collaborative work environment following the pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, reviewing the IT decision-making process at the Department of Veterans Affairs. You're watching 7 News. Agencies has, have been working for years to institute strong IT governance strategies that lead to savings and better performing IT systems. The Department of Veterans Affairs has been continually tweaking its plan. Martha Orr is Deputy Chief Information Officer for Quality Performance and Risk at the VA. Marissa Larson is Executive Director for Quality and Risk at the Department. Ladies, welcome to you both. Thank you. Martha, Martha good morning. Martha, the term IT governance is one of those terms that has been around for a long time, but nobody really knows what it means. Can you define it for us? IT governance would be, in at least in our context, uh, the methodology that we use for decision making within the Office of Information and Technology at the Department of Veterans Affairs. It is a collaborative teaming environment uh, across all organizations within um, OIT where we come together, we discuss issues, um, we make recommendations and decisions. So IT governance requires everyone in the office to participate, you know, with the VA being so dispersed across the country, 
Has it been challenging for management to convince people spread nationwide to participate? Um, I would say that yes, um, it has been a journey in that regard. Um, we have had a lot of effort and um, streamlining and process work that we've put forth. We've tweaked our processes and sometimes we've gone back actually and redone some of our processes to make them more easy and more acceptable to our organization. Um, but I think in the end we have hit on a formula that we feel is leading us to successful governance within our organization. And Marissa, let me bring you in. How does governance structure play into acquisition at the VA? Great, thank you for the question. Um, I think first and foremost, governance um, here within the Office of Information Technology, um, to Martha's point, is, is really a part of our culture. It's part of our day-to-day -day operations. And so we've really embraced this framework, um, ensuring that everyone has an opportunity to be included. And so specifically with acquisitions, um, we have an acquisition um, strategy review where we ensure that all of our strategies are aligning to our acquisitions so that we can validate that we are harnessing every dollar and ensuring that we are providing the best services for our veterans. And Martha, much of you know, IT governance has its roots in what's called the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act. Long name. Uh, what is that law, and how has the VA complied with that with that law? Well, we uh, spent a lot of time uh, making sure that we were in compliance with FATARA, and we have all of our approval activities for uh, to your earlier point to our acquisitions um, actually now coming through our governance process, and um, uh, we have approvals within the Office of Information and Technology, but also we do IT procurements outside of uh, the Office of Information and Technology as well. And we've harnessed those to come into our governance process and our approval process so that the uh, Chief Information Officer has a full view of all IT acquisitions in the department. Any challenges though, um, Martha, with acquisition in particular? Well, I think anytime you introduce a new process, a new way of doing business, there are challenges. And I mentioned earlier that we had a few, um, some lessons learned from earlier uh, processes that we implemented. We made some changes to our uh, governance structure, to our uh, councils and committees. Um, just a, a real quick and easy example is, you know, we, we um, at the beginning had adhered to the full set of uh, Robert's uh, rules of engagement. We, um, we kind of uh, made those into Bob's rules now so that we still have, um, you know, a clear approval process, a clear um, ability to capture decisions and motions and those sorts of things, but we've sort of opened the aperture a bit so that we can have more collaboration and teamwork as we go through. Uh, so just, you know, anytime you have to, you have to work with uh, the process, you have to work with the people that are in the process, but I think, I think it's safe to say by now, we have a good buy-in within the Office of Information and Technology to the governance framework, but we're constantly tweaking it, changing it, and improving it as well. So Marissa, when COVID hit last year, everyone practically started working from home. How did that affect your IT enterprise? 
So I, I think we were able to, you know, quickly respond to the pandemic and to COVID-19. And actually we were able to do this um, very expeditiously through our governance framework. So we actually established a specific COVID-19 council, um, which was able to, you know, properly review, adjudicate and make decisions um, as it came to all of our COVID decision-making. Um, and it really led us to a very repeatable, defendable um, process for the organization. All right, well, thank you very much, ladies, for both of you for joining us and being on the program. Thank you so much, happy to be here. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website too. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates and a behind the scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.